From the EPR Creation Studio, this is Jason Staples bringing you Unconquered with Doc Staples. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by EPR Creations, by Luis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, by Shenandoah Real Estate in the Research Triangle of North Carolina, by Garage Makeovers, the number one garage remodeling company in South Florida, and by my newest advertising partner, Justin Galloway of Benchmark Mortgage. As always, information's in the show notes. Let them know you heard about them from the Unconquered podcast with Doc Staples. Ooh, boy. Talk about coming out with a with a quality win against a good opponent on a wild day of college football when a couple other teams got had to dig deep. A couple other top teams had to dig deep and uh, and managed to pull some out, but some of those teams didn't survive. It's a week where USC went down again. This time to this time on their home field to Utah. I just I, I delayed recording this until I could see the result of the Clemson Miami team, and Clemson is now really mathematically out of the ACC championship game uh, situation because of Miami beating them in double overtime. And by the way, that's a Miami team that is very dangerous. That's a Miami team that can beat Florida State because of how good they are in the line of scrimmage. And I think they're just now figuring out some of the pieces that they have. I mean, AJ at, at running back is is pretty good. And I think uh, Zero, whose name is escaping me, the uh, the other slot receiver, is a guy that, that changes their offense. So that, that's, that team's becoming more scary as the, uh, as the season goes along, which is usually the opposite of what you expect from Miami. But that's a team you're going to have to worry about, and that's a team you're going to have to really play better to beat. Nevertheless... Came out of this one, I mean, again, my projected score on this was 34-13, to 13, so a 21-point win, and they came out and they won 38-20, to 20, so an 18-point win, right in the same, the same area. But this was a hard-fought 18-point win, and one that was not, a, was not a, a game that was never in doubt. I mean, I'm looking right now at the, game, at the win probability chart uh, that, that Game on Paper has up there, and in the third quarter... You know, this was uh, play number 114, so I'm not exactly sure what that was. Duke's win percentage got to 62%. So that was after Duke scored there in the in the third quarter. Their, their win percentage climbed to 64%. Now, FSU was favored, you know, they had the win probability pretty much the whole game. And then shortly after that, they, they scored themselves and then took over from there. But this was a, this was a game where... Florida State absolutely could have lost this game. I thought Duke really maximized what they could do to uh, to put themselves in position to win this game, and and that's a veteran Duke team. I mean, they they are loaded with fifth year, sixth year guys, guys that are you know fifth year in the program or tra- uh, transfers, a bunch of graduate students, and they play like it. That's a team that does not beat themselves. That's a team with a lot of grown men on the line of scrimmage, and they are a well coached football team across the board. They they do what you expect, guys. Their offensive line does what you expect a, a veteran, high-quality offensive line to do. Their defensive line gets after you and plays with their hair on fire and rotates a bunch of guys. Ultimately, that defensive line, I thought, got tired in the fourth quarter, which is, I think, a part of the the outcome here. I was getting a bunch of texts from uh, from folks during this game in the first half going, you know, FSU is going to get beat FSU, you know, they're, they're playing terrible. Duke looks so much better. And my response was, uh, you know, four quarter game. 
because I, I did think that would be a factor in this game is just FSU being able to outlast a, t- a Duke team that just doesn't have quite as much uh, quite as much depth. And I do think that was a factor as this game went along. Uh, I, I also hats off to uh, Riley Leonard. You could see what a difference he makes to that team. I mean, you look at his stat line, seven for 16, 69 yards and an interception one carry for 13 yards, and you go, well, you know, he really didn't make that big of a difference. Oh, but he did. He made, of those seven completions, several of those were of the high-quality throw into a window to extend a drive variety. He just, he keeps them consistently on schedule, and he also does a great job of making sure they're they're in the right play or, or you know, if they've got a combo play and they run a very a variety of variation of Mike Norvell's offense, and you know, in that offense, there's a number of run plays that are that are paired together. And if you see this look, then it's this play. If you see this look, then you check to this. And he just does a great job of making sure they're in the right play. Uh, they they just he he also brings a comfort level and a maturity that was just so evident. And and I did think actually the face mask the 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 pressure that uh, Fisk and several others had on that play that face mask where it didn't look like anybody rolled up on him or anything but it just looked like in the effort to escape the pressure there he kind of pushed off the foot in a way that was uncomfortable that play was was a game changing play just getting that pressure and forcing him to move in that way that that basically got him out of that game that was a key play because I'll be honest. On, on that fourth down play, if they run that same play and Leonard's in there, it's almost certain he hits that 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 back pylon ball. It's an easy throw. The pressure sped it up for for Bellin, and when Bellin uh, missed it, that was I think that was the ball game. And for what it's worth, I think that was the right call for Elko, who is look, Mike Elko deserves every bit of the hype that Deion Sanders got early in the season about. Flipping a bad, you know, one of the worst teams in the country at Colorado and look how much better they're playing and all of this. Mike Elko deserves that because of, look, Duke was as bad as Colorado two years ago. And then they won nine games last year, and that is a legitimate top 15 team this year. That is a that Duke team is a good football team. And that's that's despite they don't have a bunch of playmakers running out there. They've got some good backs but they they just do not beat themselves. And with Riley Leonard, I think that's a team that that gives a scare to just about anybody. Cuz defensively they're really good. They're good up front. They run the football well. They they're hard to stop in the running game because of all that variety we talked about it in the pregame. That's a good football team. And Florida State went out there and managed to to come out with a win. It was not a pretty win by any stretch. And you look at the numbers and you go, man, you know, you probably should have walked away with a with a bigger win i mean total yards uh looking at this average yards per play florida state 6.2 duke at 4.8 which is almost exactly what we projected in the uh in the in the game plan or the the pregame preview said about you know five yards of care or five yards of play now the thing that made this a more competitive game was duke averaged 5.6 yards per carry and that that's crazy. 5.6 yards a carry. That was not good enough. 
And the thing that I think you can criticize Florida State for early on is I think once Riley Leonard was playing in this game. So they came into this game. I, I think they came into this game expecting Bielan to play, to be the to be the starter and probably expecting probably not Riley Leonard, but they were prepared to play against Leonard. And I think their their game plan against Leonard was just too conservative in the early going. They had a lot of respect for his arm. And they had a lot of respect for what for what Duke does in the RPO game and all that. And, you know, they sat back in their, you know, match read cover seven stuff. And we're just not aggressive enough up front. We're not aggressive enough in terms of the calls. And I thought they let Duke initiate the action way too much in the early going. It's a Duke team that wants to take it to you. I said in the in the preview that in my view, even if Leonard plays, you get after them, you try to pressure the heck out of him, and you force him to to throw into to throw into tight coverage. So play true man free. Play more 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 tight more of the press type stuff that you've got. Do a full pressure defense and sell out to stop the run. That's what they should have done in the first half. And they didn't. And, you know, it's still frustrating. (laughs) I mean, I look at the first half numbers. They averaged 5.8 yards per play, which is better than they did in the second half, right? I'm going to look at those in a a moment. But 5.8 yards per play, 7.2 yards per carry. That's the number I was looking for. 7.2 yards per carry on 20 carries in the first half. 144 rushing yards. That right there, that's unacceptable. Even as good as that Duke team is up front and they've got good backs and all that. Second half, when Florida State turned the corner and decided, okay, fine, you know, we we don't have to respect them outside. Let's just sell out and stop the run. Well, Duke averaged 15 carries, 3.5 yards per carry, 53 rushing yards. That's and and scored zero. What I don't understand is it should have been apparent in the initial game planning phase that that's how you should defend this Duke team. That should have been obvious that if this Duke team can't run the football, you're going to win the football game. Give up a few downfield plays, give up a couple big plays, be willing to give up some shots to choke this team out and give yourself the football more so that you can score. And so that you can tire their defense out, get more possessions. I really don't understand what they were doing in in terms of that first half, in terms of how they defended it. They just were were too passive and really did not let those safeties come downhill. You didn't see as much of the attack the running game mindset that they had in the second half. And they weren't as physical, I don't think, up front as they needed to be. Second half, the, the switch got flipped. And once Florida State went up in the second half and you had Beal in at quarterback, it, it, you know, you could see that they, the, the blood was in the water and, and that game was over. By the way, first half, Florida State, 15 carries for 2.5 yards per carry. So similar to Duke's second half numbers. And then second half, Florida State, 17 carries for 6.7 yards per carry. And the primary difference there, this offense looks completely different when Jordan Travis runs the football. Simple as that. Jordan Travis is a very good college quarterback. 
but he's not a great thrower. He's a good thrower. I mean, you look at his numbers in this game, 27 for 36, 268 yards, two touchdowns, one one pick that was sort of unfortunate. That's that's pretty good. That's really good. And he had a couple missed throws in there. But you're not talking about Drake May or Caleb Williams as a thrower. What makes him a special college quarterback is that he combines that ability to throw the football and threaten you downfield. And he threaded some needles tonight. That throw to Keon Coleman was an absolute dime. One of the best throws you're going to see all weekend. But that's not what makes him special. There are other quarterbacks who can do that and some that can do it better. Not many that do it better, not a bunch, but some that can. But there might not be anybody else in the country that can do that and do what he does in the running game when he when they fully turn him loose. And you could see in the second second half, as you got to the end of the third quarter and into the fourth quarter, they basically said, okay, we're taking the we're taking the handcuffs off and we're gonna add the quarterback run threat. We're gonna we're gonna read these plays instead of just having it as a decoy. We're gonna read these plays and Jordan, you just keep it. And Jordan Travis was the leading rusher for Florida State in this game. 10 carries for 62 yards, touchdown, average 6.2 yards per carry. And compare that to, say, Trey Benson, who never could get out of neutral in this game. 10 carries for 26 yards. And honestly, I, I hate to say, but my concerns about sort of where, where Florida State's offense would be with Benson as the you know primary feature back this season without having the counterpart that he had last year without uh, Treshawn Ward. My concerns there in the in the preseason, which I, I stated, I do think those have been borne out a bit. I think, I, I, I said then, I still think that, that Trey Benson is really more of a supplementary back than a true feature back. And I know that sounds crazy to say about a guy that's 6'1", 225, breaks as many tackles as he does, has, you know, the big play highlight runs that he does. But I just think against your best fronts, your best defenses, You've got to have another guy who can be more of a between the tackles, change of pace back to set him up for some of those big plays as the defense gets loosened up. I think he's a really good 1B. I really think they need to figure out what they're doing with 1A. And I think tonight you started to see a little bit of that as the game went on. Saw a little bit from Keziah Holmes, three carries for 11 yards, not much. Tofili had a decent night on three carries for, for 23. But the guy that finished the game was Rodney Hill. Six carries for 30 yards, five, five a pop. And, and I thought Hill finished it pretty well. He's a guy that I'd like to see get more carries in, as, a, uh, as a potential big play or as a potential big game type back because of the way he just the presence he has as a, as a vision runner. I'd also like to see Keziah Holmes get more carries just as a an opportunity to see whether he could be that if you if you get into a pinch and you're having trouble running the football in uh, in those big games. But I also think Florida State's offensive line is tipping their their run calls and tipping specifically which runs they're they're in over and over and over again. I mean, one thing is just the depth that they line up at. This has been a problem for a couple of years. They 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 worked on it some second half of last year after it was brought to their attention. And, you know, they could have kept, you know, they, they should have been able to keep that forward into this year, but it's it's reemerged as a problem. And it was a it's been a problem pretty much all year. But especially the guards tend to line up deep. But I mean, there are times where 
both the guard and the tackle on the side of whichever side is going to pull is almost a yard off the ball. And they're leaning back. Guys, you got to be consistent with your balance. You got to be consistent with what you're doing. Simple as that. And that's something they're going to have to, they're going to have to resolve before they, before they get moving. Because I think teams are keying on that. I mean, I know for a fact, I talked to one team that played Florida state last year. I talked to a defensive staffer and asked him about some stuff. And he said, Oh yeah, you know, they had, they had three specific tells on their offensive line where, where we knew it was runner pass and we knew, you know, some pulls. Well, I mean, I wasn't the only one that noticed it after they played, after that team had played, I, I asked about it and they, you know, off the record again, and not saying who that team was off the record. I, I got that answer. This is something Florida state is going to have to really address. But Florida State, I will say, again, that offense looks completely different when the handcuffs are taken off Jordan Travis and when he can run the football. They couldn't run the football as long as Duke was able to, to load up against the, the back. As soon as Jordan Travis's legs came into play, that game, that game changed. He changed that game. Because again, I mean, look, Caleb Williams is a great runner too. He's a really good runner as a quarterback. But I don't think he's quite, the, quite as dynamic a runner as Jordan Travis is, at least in the design run game. Now, I don't think Travis is, you know, the thrower that, <laughs> that Williams is. But, I mean, he's a good, he's a really good thrower. Inconsistent at times, again, some of the motion stuff we've talked about. But he is one of the best quarterbacks in the country when he runs like this. Now, I agree with Florida State's decision not to have him run all the time and, and actually not to have him run most of the time. You don't want him pulling the ball and running, a, running it a bunch against Virginia Tech or against Southern, Southern Miss, even against Boston College, who, by the way, smoked Georgia Tech in the second half up in Atlanta this, this weekend. That's a, better Georgia, or that's a better Boston College team than I think anybody thought early in the year. Now that Castellanos is at quarterback, they, they're, they're different. So that's turning out to be a decent win. That's going to be a bowl team. That's turning out to be a pretty good win for Florida State up front, even though you know, it shouldn't have been as close as it was. But, I mean, against those teams, against teams that you're beating, against teams that you don't need him to run, you don't run him. You do what Clemson did with Deshaun Watson and with the Elf. You have them just completely stay in the pocket and try to get the ball out of their hands and distribute and work on that part of their game until you play Florida State or Alabama or one of those teams that you know is going to be able to neutralize you in other ways. And all of a sudden you play 11 man football and things get fun. Now you let Deshaun Watson run wild and he runs for a hundred plus yards and you beat Alabama. Now you let Jordan Travis run and you're a whole lot harder to defend. And that's what they're going to have to do against Miami. Jordan Travis is going to have to run for them to beat Miami. I'm convinced of that. But, the thing is, he's shown he's still willing, he's, he's still able, and he's smart. He's, he's getting smarter about this in terms of not really finding ways to put himself in, in, in harm's way a bunch. A couple tonight that, you know, you'd like him to get down a little quicker, but he does a pretty good job with it. Otherwise, you know, you look at the, at the numbers, Jaheim Bell, 53 yards, was, the, was eight catches, was the, the, the main target tonight. Uh, Johnny Wilson, five for 58. They, they were consistent. 
with with going at those guys. Keon with two for fifty four. Uh, they they targeted him a, a, I think a couple of times that they shouldn't have, including the interception. Uh, actually, I thought, uh, and I, I need to take a closer look at it again. But my uh, my impression was, you know, it's a spacing thing, and uh, they, he should have gone to the curl flat on the uh, on the short side there, based on the defensive look. I'm pretty sure he misread that and and tried going to the and started his read on the wrong side, so it should have gone should have gone backside and worked the uh, the curl flat, and you should have had on that. Uh, I think you got Johnny on the on the backside and should have Johnny on the curl. And if not, then you just go to the flat and and call it a day. Uh, but yeah, I'm pretty sure that 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 should have gone the other way. But all in all, uh, a pretty good pretty good outcome in general. Once you got to Travis running the football. Now, one other thing that I I wondered in this game, and I've wondered a little bit the last couple weeks is at different points this season, the offense has not felt like Mike Norvell was calling the place. And, and this is not, I'm I'm not operating from, I'm not passing along inside information here, but this is just a, this is my intuition in terms of just the feel of the offense at different times. It's felt more like an Alex Atkins offense than a Norvell offense, just in terms of its, of the overall rhythm of the calls and, and when the calls get in the overall rhythm of the offense and certain things in terms of flow. One of the things that when Mike Norvell has been the chief play caller throughout his career that has always stood out to me is just a real, there's just a, a, a an outstanding rhythm to his play calling. And it's something it's hard to put a finger on, but it's intuitive and I can kind of, I understand what he's doing in terms of layering it. Okay. This is following up that, et cetera. And I've not felt like that all season. I've kind of, I've kind of uh, touched on it a few times indirectly at different points. For those of you who've been paying attention uh, in some of these episodes, talking about just in terms of rhythm and identity and some of those things. And I got the feeling last week uh, against Syracuse that maybe he had taken over a little bit at one point in that game. Or I can't remember if it was Syracuse or, or Virginia Tech, but I was talking with someone else about this, someone who has some uh, other connections on this and, and sort of speculated to him, you know, I'm not sure Mike's been calling all the plays, but he might've taken the keys back for a little bit on X, Y, and Z drive. Cause they just felt to me like Norvell drives. And I basically got to, I'll get back to you <laughs> on that sort of thing. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I think tonight was one of those nights where I wonder whether or not Norvell sort of took the keys back in the second half. Now, the reason that I may not, that may not be accurate. I mean, there's several reasons that may not be accurate, but it's hard to differentiate. It's hard to disentangle taking the handcuffs off Jordan Travis and the offense suddenly opening up and looking like it's flowing much better. And maybe Norvell taking, you know, taking a little bit more hands-on role with the play calling. I mean, maybe that's the case. Uh, Maybe it's just that, that Travis started that they started calling more uh, dash calls or run calls for, uh, for, for reads for, for Travis to be able to hold on to the football and that opened it up. And so it felt more like what uh, Norvell has done in the past. Maybe it wasn't, maybe, maybe it was more than that, but it is something to kind of think about. And, And the fact is that we know that Mike Norvell is a guy that has let his coordinators call it in the past. I mean, Kevin Johns called, a decent amount at uh at Memphis one of the years that um 
that Dillingham was it was it Florida State? Dillingham called a lot of the plays. So, I mean, I would be surprised if if Atkins wasn't in charge with a lot this year in terms of that. So, you know, ultimately, uh, and this is one of those things that every staff, you always have those dynamics that you have to work out and you have to figure out how you're going to divide stuff up and what the communication on the headsets is going to be like and who's sort of pulling the strings and doing specific things in practice in terms of the coordination and all of that. And sometimes the head coach gets more involved with something when it's not, uh, when it's not clicking just right. Another thing, by the way, that, uh, that should be pointed out and actually was pointed out to me via text with, uh, another, uh, another coach, former player, uh, that was that the screen game has been off timing all, all season. And then all of a sudden tonight, the screens were on time. So they, they seem to have gotten that cleaned up, looked a little bit like they might've gotten it cleaned up a little sort of mostly cleaned up in the uh, Syracuse game. They started to get some of that a little bit better, but they'd been out of rhythm on the screens and just off their timing all season. And then tonight they hit a few screens where the timing was just right. The, the lineman released at the right time, got into the right, into their right, uh, their right paths back was on the right landmark and just everything was on time made a huge difference. So that's another thing that, uh, that, that stood out in this, uh, in this process. Now, a few other things. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to wrap this or I don't want to just to, uh, end this episode before talking about the kickoff return, uh, with Deuce span. What an absolutely monster play that play completely changed the complexion of the game to that point. That is also one of the reasons why Florida state's offense was not on the field as much. I mean, that's one of those things that kind of distorts stats when you, when you look at them. I mean, FSU had 420 total yards with one fewer possession because of that, that, uh, that kickoff return, but you'll take those points every time. And it was evident, I think from the first kickoff return as well, that, that Florida state felt like they, they'd noticed something. They'd found something in the Duke, kickoff coverage that they they were going to hit and they knew that they were going to start there and and get a, a left-hand return i thought it was really interesting they they put up on the uh on the screen mike norvell talking to span before the game saying you know just make sure you're comfortable carrying it in your left hand use your right hand for the uh for the uh the stiff arm knowing that that was that he was going to get an opportunity in a kickoff return where it was going to be a left return and they were going to hit it and boy they they just absolutely nailed it and so you got to give Florida State credit. That's one of those things where, I mean, again, I'm a former uh, special teams coordinator. I, I did a lot of this. You you spend a lot of time trying to break down. Okay, wh- where's their coverage, guys? You know, does this guy tend to get a little bit out of his lane? Where do they tend to kick it? All of these things. And eventually, you try to you try to hone in on. Okay, this return might just hit if we can hit it this way. And sometimes you just, you, you have a feel like this game, it's going to hit. I know we've got, we've got the right one against the right team and they had it. I mean, Hill almost hit it in the first half or in the, on the first kickoff. Then Span got his opportunity and took it to the house. The other thing that stood out to me on that is as fast as Deuce Span is, and we all know how fast Deuce Span is. I think he's the fastest player on this team. That guy can absolutely fly. Talking about a probable like four three type guy at his size, and yes, he did not 
sprint down the field at full speed the whole way. You could kind of see him once he broke out and he knew he wasn't getting caught. He kind of shut it down. But Hakeem Williams on that kickoff return. Oh, my goodness. Did he flash some speed? The wheels to catch up on the angle to catch up to span. Even if span is running 85% there, Hakeem Williams flashed some get up and go, you know, take it to the house speed. There's a lot of reason to be excited about that young man moving forward. He can absolutely go. And so I didn't want to want to wrap without, uh, without talking about that. That is a, a huge, huge deal. Uh, both in terms of the preparation and the way that they managed to, to get a, a special teams play against a team that is as well coached as Duke to get something that changed that game that way. That is a, that's a really big deal. So hat tip to Mike Norvell and the whole staff and, and John Papuchas for, uh, for scheming that up get, and, and Ron Dugan's coaching the, the returners there for scheming that up and coaching it just right. And, and, to span and the rest that whole that whole team for getting that right in that context because again that is a game changing play. Now in terms of things coming out of this game, you know some of the stuff that you that you look at, you know you you hope Johnny Wilson they said probably a head injury maybe a, maybe some sort of concussion there. Uh, you hope he's he's ready to go in the next game that you really need him. I mean looking forward, I think you can beat Wake Forest and Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh has looked better last couple weeks, but you should be able to handle Wake Forest and Pitt on the road and, you know, not necessarily have to run Jordan Travis in those games. Maybe against Pitt, you have to run them a little bit. I don't know, but they're going to single cover you a lot and, and your receivers are going to have some opportunities. Uh, but it is going to be tough to run against Pitt. They, they, they've got a good run game or a good run defense, but you feel like you can, you, you should be able to handle Wake and Pitt moving forward. And then you're going to get that war at home against Miami. And, that's when you're going to need to be fully healthy, fully weaponized to, to be able to handle that. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think you still have some significant concerns up front. Uh, you're still not as healthy at tackle as you'd like to be, to be able to move some of the pieces that you want them wh- where you want them on the offensive line to have your optimal five on at different points. I, I don't think they've had their optimal five on the, on the field at any one point this year. And you know, the clock's ticking on that and whether or not they're actually going to be able to do that. Maybe, you know, maybe in the playoff. I, I don't know if they make the playoff, but uh, but they're going to have to figure out some ways to get more traditional running game off the ground against better defenses. And that's one of the big concerns coming out of this game is Duke handled you up front again in the running game. And you've shown a lot of vulnerability to teams that can shoot the gaps that have some quickness on the defensive line. And you're going to have to be able to handle that better. Uh, and the on the flip side, you know, giving up, or giving up 110 yards on 16 carries to Jacquez Moore. You know, that's that's not good enough. Four carries for 30 yards, 7.5 a carry to Jalen Coleman. You know, you cannot give up that much in the running game against better teams, and they're going to have to figure out ways, especially in the first half, to come out more aggressive and to be willing to have that identity on defense to fly around and take away what teams do on the, on the ground on that and be confident that they can handle some of that in the back end, drop a little bit more of that, you know, trim down the cover seven stuff to maybe 35% instead of 70% in the first half against more teams. And, and if you do want to stay in more of a cover four type, look, 
you know, play more true cover four with some press, you know, kind of Pittsburgh style to take away the run against these teams. Because again, you've got the corners to be able to take a lot of that away, especially in, in against this kind of team and against a Miami type team. They're going to want to run the football. You cannot just expect to stop the stop Miami running the football with a light box. You're going to have to commit a, a bit more and force them to beat you throwing the football. And I, I think that needs to be the MO of this team much more is, is what they did in the second half once again. But we'll have plenty of time to talk more about this. Um, this is a game I'm going to want to break down uh, the film of a little bit more in detail. Might do two sessions this week. We'll see. Uh, see what, what time allows. But until then, we'll go ahead and wrap that. This has been the Hot Takes Edition. Talk to you soon. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please leave a five-star rating over at Apple Podcasts and wherever else you listen to podcasts, post and repost episodes on social media, and tell a friend. And if you haven't left a review in a while, do it again. It really does help the visibility of the podcast. Before we go, I'd also like to thank my advertising partners once more. That's EPR Creations, Louis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, Shenandoah Real Estate in the Research Triangle of North Carolina, Garage Makeovers, the number one garage remodeling company in South Florida, and Justin Galloway of Benchmark Mortgage, serving Florida, Alabama, Tennessee, and Kentucky. You can also stop by the Unconquered shop at unconqueredpodcast.com where you can buy stickers, pins, magnets, t-shirts, and other swag. And thanks also to all those supporters over at Patreon where I post video analysis and field questions for the podcast. I am especially grateful to those above the dynasty level. That is Andrew Garrett, Brian Leininger, Neil Cook, Casey Kidd, Chris Chartrand, Dave Blair, Hector Cartagena, Jack Horton, Jimmy Van, Jonathan Kennedy, Keith Cheney, Lee Caswell, Tyler Kashishke, Vince Calandra, and Bert Bertoldi. You all are far more generous than I deserve. I'm really grateful. Thanks to you all. This has been Unconquered with Doc Staples. I'm your host, Jason Staples. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. I made this.